January is the time for New Year's resolutions. But how can psychology be used to make those decisions work for you and the planet? This is Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. Welcome to a brand new series for 2023. To start a new year, we're looking for hope, inspiration and ideas to make our lives and world better. This time, how can we address climate change through public perception? Dr. Chris Jones is a reader in applied psychology and director of the Quality of Life, Health and Wellbeing Group at the University of Portsmouth. He believes we can all be positively influenced to live more sustainable lifestyles. I think we are now more aware than ever of the effects that we're having on the environment. And I think that there is perhaps uh, amongst the majority of society a greater willingness than ever to act. But just because we're aware of an issue or we're made aware of an issue doesn't guarantee that people will act or will act consistently or will act appropriately. Chris has been at the heart of numerous studies on how thinking can be changed from how we heat our homes to the clothes we buy. And if you've adopted a plant-based diet for January, He's got some advice for you. Just a glance around any bookshop will tell you that we know more about the mind than ever before. From self-help paperbacks to weighty academic tomes, the wealth of research and information grows daily. Meanwhile, science is creating all kinds of solutions for the better, and companies are trying to implement those solutions. Combining psychology with technology is where Chris comes in. We do know quite a lot about what makes people tick in this particular area, particularly around how they are responding to the big issues that are facing us, like climate change, and a lot of work in terms of what drives people to act or not to act on these issues, how we can better create communication materials to foster and facilitate the right kinds of behaviours, and also applying that to energy use in the home. Again, we know a little bit more now than we did previously about the reasons as to why people utilise energy in the home why people respond or don't respond appropriately to the kinds of interventions that we're devising to reduce energy consumption in the home, why people don't take on board insulation schemes when they're offered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're doing a lot of work in this area, and I've always had this interest in how energy is generated and supplied to homes, or electricity is generated and supplied to homes. Um, and so I now have the opportunity to look at the human face of that particular question about, well, you know, what do people think about how power is supplied and how power is generated and how can we maybe get people to think differently about how they're utilising energy in order to address these big environmental issues that we're facing. So how are companies allowing for customers and citizens' reactions? It looks like there's been some positive progress in recent years. If we're looking at electricity generating technologies as an example, in the past it was quite commonplace in the UK to have a very top-down decision-making process where experts or politicians or technologists came up with the ideas, the solutions to the problems that we had, and then they launched them on society and said, you know, here we go, this will solve the problem, you should be willing to accept these things. And of course that created a lot of issues. A lot of people don't like the idea of having decisions made behind their backs, you know, behind closed doors, and then sort of launched upon them. And a lot of people rallied against the decisions which were being made. It may not be the case that they are rejecting the technology per se, and I think that's an important thing to distinguish, really. They might like the technology, but they don't like the way in which the decisions have been made relating to that technology. And if you'd 
gone about employing much more of an inclusive participatory decision-making process, then you might not have actually faced those issues. I think we're now in a situation where we are more aware of the value of participatory planning and participatory design, and topics like co-design tend to frequently feature in the work that I do. So this is working directly with the people who are going to be affected by the technologies in order to listen to what their hopes, dreams, aspirations, concerns, attitudes, beliefs, so on and so on and so forth are. And then you can integrate those into the decisions you're making, be those the particular design of the technology that you're creating so that it more closely maps to what they expect or what they want from it, or listening to host communities in order to understand as to, well, why are they potentially opposed to the siting of a wind farm or a facility in their particular community. One good example of understanding the consumer whilst achieving an environmental aim is the introduction of smart meters into homes and businesses. Who hasn't taken a nervous glance at the screen to check the cost of heating their house recently? There are a number of different ways in which you can feed back information to people about the energy that they're using and the consequence that it has. Commonly, you will see things like the cost associated with the energy that you're using. And of course, currently, that is a big issue for a lot of people because the uh, you know, cost of living is increasing, the cost of energy has gone up massively. And so people are going to be more responsive to those kinds of financial feedback levers in terms of understanding what kind of consumption that they have within the home and, and then maybe working to address that. But that's just one option. Another option would be, of course, around carbon emitted. So again, you're trying to create a sense of the carbon contribution of your actions in the home and therefore the the contributions to climate change that that would have so that's more of an environmental lever and that's where things get just a little complicated we all have different reasons for doing what we do and not doing what we don't do as chris points out us humans are a diverse bunch people are different and you and i are different me and my wife are different you know there's lots of diversity out there in society and there's diversity in terms of how different communities are going to respond to different kinds of messages. So, you know, some people will respond quite well to a financial message, particularly if they are really sort of focused on the financial side of the issues, maybe because they're living in fuel poverty or what have you. People who are slightly more affluent may not necessarily respond so much to those financial messages, but may respond better to the environmental message that comes with the, the carbon generated communication that can come from these devices. It's understanding that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. The kinds of messages which are going to work well with one group won't necessarily work so well with another group. And it's about understanding your audience better, ensuring that you are tailoring your message appropriately to the groups that you're trying to influence in a positive way, of course. So that's a key thing to bear in mind when we're talking about the general public. We're actually talking about the general publics. And if you can positively influence the publics, plural, when it comes to energy usage, you can use those techniques for wider sustainability. But once again, there's no one-size-fits-all plan for our complicated and varied human minds. Remember those cartoons with the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, making their respective arguments? We're sat in a context often where we want to live well and we want to have nice things and these nice things are tempting to us. You know, we might want to go out for a nice steak now and again or we might want to drive a nice car or we might want to fly away on holiday. So there's a lot of complexity out there which creates problems for people because they're not necessarily going to be sure as to what the best options are. How do people make these sort of trade-offs between the good and the bad things that they do in life and what is the psychology behind that? What are the mechanisms that underpin that? And one of the things that we're looking at within this space is the compensatory green belief. 
So this is a belief that by doing something good for the environment or by planning to do something good for the environment, that somehow atones for doing something more negative. So if I am doing veganuary, for example, then that will mean that I'm allowed to fly away on holiday later in the year because these things balance out. Okay, in reality, they may not balance out at all. And it might be that you make promises that you don't necessarily fulfill, but they are sort of cognitive dissonance resoluting things that we can use. You know, if we feel a bit guilty, if we feel a little bit bad, actually making these trade-off decisions in our heads by going through these justifications, that somehow makes the things a little bit more allowable, which allows us to resolve the guilt that we feel and then we can move on. If you've got tofu in one hand and a travel brochure in the other this January, then how can psychology plot a course that balances sustainability and human desire? This is one of the areas that is starting to see some serious study. One of the big areas of research interest currently in psychology is around spillover effects. So positive spillover effects, particularly, are the kind of the great hope for society, or one great hope for society. This is where you intervene in one aspect of a person's life. So maybe this is how their diet at work, for example. And you hope that by intervening in that context, that then bleeds through to other aspects of their life. So maybe it impacts upon their diet at home, or maybe it impacts upon their energies at home. Or have you. So there are these interesting sort of direct and indirect relationships that we're interested in. But the kind of the take-home point here is that this, this concept of acting in one or intervening in one aspect of a person's life in order to have benefits on an aspect of a person's life is seen as important. So if you can kind of work to strengthen a person's sense of being green, green identity or pro-environmental identity, then that's more likely to lead to these positive spillover effects occurring. Because if you think about yourself as being green in one aspect of your life, you're more likely to want to act in a consistent way in other aspects of your life. So if an intervention works to affect your sense of identity and makes you feel greener, then if you go out of the context within which you are intervened upon, into other aspects of your life and you have that greater sense or stronger sense of being green, you're more likely to want to act green in other areas of your life. And a lot of it can come down to messaging, education and what have you. But education, messaging, those kinds of things are only part and parcel of of a much bigger whole. People can't act in a pro-environmental way if you don't allow them to do so. So looking at the environment around a person and whether or not that's conducive to environmental action. So if you've made an environmentally friendly New Year's resolution, whether investing in an electric car or cutting down on meat consumption, then keep at it. That resolution should be for life, not just for Christmas. Even if we do get action, which is, of course, you know, what we're looking for, there are questions around, well, what happens in terms of the consistency of the actions? But also there is the risk of tokenistic responding as well so people might act once or they might act in one aspect of their life and that's good of course that should be encouraged but if they just stop there if they stop at uh, you know just one action or stop in one element of their life then that's not going to get us all the way towards the goal that we need so we need people to make similar decisions and engage in similar actions in different parts of their life key to chris's work is understanding how individuals will react and what beliefs they might hold But the businesses seeking the change are a large part of the equation as well. In fact, the conversation needs to happen right at the start to build consumer trust. This actually plays into something which is going to be perhaps more important than understanding in terms of how people respond to the prospect of this technology locally. Knowledge of how something works does often have a positive relationship with someone's attitude, but it's often quite a weak relationship 
just because you have an objective understanding of something doesn't mean you're going to accept it. In fact, what will tend to be the case is it's things like your trust in the developer or how the technology fits within your sort of broader value systems, which is much more of a defining factor in terms of how people respond. Fail to do this at your peril because there is a wealth of history to back the warning up. The genetic modification, GM technologies and stuff like that in certain parts of the world were received quite poorly and that has been put down in some regard to failures to appropriately engage publics in the discussions about what these technologies would do, you know, what the risks were, what the benefits were and so on and so forth. But you can also see this playing out in a much more localised context as well. The prospect of citing a wind farm in an onshore location, this will often be perceived to be very controversial. Lots of communities will rally against the proposal because often they will feel that they're not being involved in the decisions which are affecting them. You know, there are often concerns as well with the technologies that sometimes, again, people think can be resolved through simple conversation, but it may be a little bit more hard won. So there are lots of examples, both at kind of a local level, but also at a more sort of socio-political general level where these kinds of failures to appropriately engage those people who are affected can create issues. Chris's work at the University of Portsmouth aims to avoid mistakes like these in the future. He points out that whilst engineers might have confidence that their technology will change the world, it's his job to bring the psychology of influence to the table. I'm in a project with researchers from Southampton, from Surrey and from Sheffield universities, and that's called the Fever Project. And this is looking at uh, creating a fully off-grid, renewably powered EV charging solution. So basically what they're trying to do here is create a way of charging electric vehicles entirely powered by renewables but which is off-grid. So, you know, we do have electric vehicle chargers currently, but these are all connected in one way or another to the national grid. And that's all well and good, but there are certain parts of the country which don't have a good grid connection or a little bit more isolated, maybe a bit more rural. And so to have reliable charging capacity in these places, you need to have a solution to that. So we're working as part of this project in order to develop such a solution over the next five years or so. We'll be designing this technology and we'll be demonstrating this technology. And importantly, from my perspective, a key part of it is looking at the public face of it. So understanding what people think about the prospect of having one of these charges. Will they use it? Will they go out of their way to use it? But also not focusing solely at the, the kind of the general socio-political level. So in general, hypothetically, what do you think? But actually also looking at host communities or prospective host communities for these demonstrators and speaking to local people there about what their expectations are, what the technology will look like or what it will bring to their communities. So again, we can try and integrate those perceptions into the decisions that are being made. And at a time when energy security is a major talking point, heating our homes in unique ways is another meeting of head and heart that Chris is working on. I'm doing a project with researchers from Birmingham, Loughborough and Nottingham. And this is a project called GasNet New, and this is looking about innovative ways to heat and cool our homes, utilising the existing gas network. So at the minute, we're quite reliant on gas to heat most of our homes. This is not sustainable. There are things that you can do. You can put different things through these tubes, these pipes which come into our homes, which could heat and cool homes. One of the key ones which is being investigated is using hydrogen. You can generate hydrogen from seawater and things like that. But you can also put other interesting things in these pipes as well. And this is what we're investigating. So various different chemicals you could put in for want of a better expression. But then if you start talking about these kinds of things, well, we're going to put chemicals through these pipes which are coming into your home or putting hydrogen in these pipes which are coming to your home. This uh, will raise people's concern radar, if you can put it in such blunt terms. 
people will start thinking, well, hang on, is this risky? You know, what's this going to do? What do these chemicals involve? What does it mean to have hydrogen in my house rather than natural gas? So again, this presents some interesting questions for me as a social scientist working in this area. What do people perceive to be the risks and how does this play into their acceptance of a given technology or how do different technology options compare against one another? So that kind of comparative preference scenario is quite an interesting thing. Technology combined with consumer behaviour can go a huge way towards solving the climate crisis, which perhaps offers us some hope to solve problems faster with every innovation. But as Chris points out, the real impacts will be seen in actions taken by the public, or publics, as he puts it, which means that the solutions innovators, designers, engineers and companies offer ultimately need to be understandable and attractive to consumers. In short, by offering people simple and helpful solutions, technology really can change the world, and fast. From what we eat to the way we power our homes, Chris's research is helping us all see the benefits of technological developments and change the way we live our lives to create a greener future. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university sent direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday with another story of how work that's happening here is changing all of our lives for good. Catch you then.